Section 21 of the Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Rome by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 17, Part 2. The First Christian Empresses. In the eastern court, the young empress had, if we trust the authorities, a more adventurous career. Constantia cannot have been more than seventeen or eighteen at the time of her marriage, but she was a woman of spirit and ability, as well as virtue and beauty. It is said that she, with the whole court, became a Christian after Constantine's victory over Maxentius, but the story of the miraculous sign in the heavens, a story that is not found in any form until thirty years afterwards, is now rejected, and the conversion of Constantine is spread over many years. At Nicomedia, however, where Constantia occupied the magnificent palace built by Diocletian, she met the accomplished and courtly Eusebius, and induced Licinius to allow him the position of Bishop of Nicomedia. Two things, it is said, then transpired in the character of Licinius to excite her disgust. He not only persecuted the Christians, but made equal war upon virtue. In brief, he, like all the other persecutors, is depicted by the flowing pen of Lactantius as an erotic ogre, his eye falls on a Christian maiden of dazzling beauty and virtue in the suite of Constantia, and he sends an officer to corrupt her. She tells Constantia, who dresses her as a young military officer and sends her, with a splendid equipage, to take an imaginary imperial commission to a remote region. In the distant city of Amasia, she is embarrassed by her masculine hosts and confides in the bishop, Finally, a letter of hers to Constantia is intercepted, and she escapes by a very timely death from the embraces or the tortures of Licinius. Of these wicked ways, and of her husband's hostility to the Christians, Constantia is said to have kept her brother well informed, and when Licinius committed the greater enormity of refusing to surrender fugitive offenders to the vengeance of Constantine, the legions were once more led toward the Bosphorus. Several disastrous battles crippled the power of Licinius, and he retired sullenly to Nicomedia. Whether at his request or no, Constantia interceded for him, and Constantine swore to respect his life. In assigning the blame for the war, we may perhaps hesitate between the contradictory charges of the opposing schools of historians, though modern writers usually follow the neutral and sober Eutropius, and ascribe it to the ambition of Constantine. But there is a sharper indictment of Constantine's conduct after the war. Licinius, in surrendering, had relied on the oath of the conqueror. He had been stripped of the purple and exiled to Thessalonica, but he was put to death there shortly afterwards. Zosimus and Eutropius say that this was done in spite of the oath, 
and the statement of Constantine's more resolute admirers, that Licinius was discovered in treasonable intrigue, has not carried much conviction with later historians. Constantia passed, with her daughter Helena and her boy Licinius, to the court of her brother, who was now, 324, master of the whole empire. The remark of Zosimus, that Constantine degenerated into the most willful license after his attainment of supreme power, a remark feebly supported by the assurance of the cautious Eutropius that prosperity somewhat altered his character, contrasts quaintly with the circumstance that he now became the imperial patron of the Christian religion. Here again we hesitate between conflicting accounts or rival romances. According to the medieval Christian writer Zonaris, who supplies a remarkable amount of detail that was unknown to contemporary historians, the conversion of Constantine had a picturesque origin. On his return to Rome, after crushing Licinius, he was afflicted with a painful eruption, and his pagan physicians prescribed a bath in the warm blood of children. At once, says the lively writer, children were collected from the whole empire and dispatched to the palace. The lamentations of the mothers fell on the ear of Constantine, touched his heart, and he left paganism in disgust for Christianity. The pagan Greek Zosimus, who at least faithfully reproduces the pagan gossip of his time, as on this point we know from Zosimen, gives us the legend of his school. After committing certain murders, which will occupy us presently, Constantine applied to the priests of the temple of Jupiter for purification. The priests sternly replied that their lustral water had no power to obliterate the trace of such a crime, and Constantine turned in despair to an Egyptian who was known to the women-folk of the palace. The Christian priest, as he seems to have been, declared that his religion contained the desired remedy, and Constantine embraced it. It will be seen that we now pursue our biographic way amid a forest of legends. Happily, we may reject both these stories as at least anachronisms. Constantine was already a Christian in 324. He had abolished the decrees of persecution in the year 313, and had taken a keen interest in church matters for some years. The whole court gradually accepted the new faith, Helena, Eusebius tells us, and Fausta for some time opposed the change of religion. But Helena at least was converted. Eutropia appears in the East a few years later as a zealous opponent of paganism. From their several and ample purses, the money poured into the lean coffers of the church, and the conversion of the empire proceeded rapidly. Villages that embraced Christianity were raised to the dignity of cities. Nobles and officers were encouraged by promotion, and ordinary citizens were rewarded with a baptismal robe and a piece of gold. It is not for us to inquire into the obscure question of Constantine's real attitude. Professor Berry and other eminent authorities believe that his creed was a liberal or vague one until his death. 
Years afterwards we find him building pagan temples at Constantinople, and he did not disdain the imperial title of Sovereign Pontiff of the Old Religion. On the other hand, the details collected by Mr. Firth show a very real interest in the Church. He opened the Great Council of Nicaea in the year 325, and reverently kissed the wounds of those who had suffered in the persecution. Yet even amid this evidence of orthodoxy, the hesitating student will find trace of his liberality. In the letter which he sent to the Catholic bishops, he complained that the subject of their vehement quarrel with the Arians was quite insignificant and entirely disproportionate to such a quarrel. The question at issue was the divinity of Christ. His experience at the council would give him a larger sense of its importance. From the benedictions of the prelates and the embraces of the martyrs, Constantine returned to Europe, and within a year, apparently, his court was rent by a tragedy that has left an irremovable cloud on his memory. He had gone to Rome with the court to celebrate the twentieth anniversary of his accession. The city exulted in the rare indulgence of his presence, and the games and festivities warmed it with its old enthusiasm. The empire was united and at peace, and the growing brood of children gave promise of an unending dynasty. Crispus, Constantine's eldest son, was now a popular and promising commander, clothed in the mantle of a Caesar. Two of the sons of Fausta, or her substitute, were Caesars. Then there was the twelve-year-old son of Constantia. Over these watched the aged Helena and Eutropia, and the mothers and aunts of the younger children. In the middle of the festivity, Rome was startled to hear that Crispus had been arrested by his father's command and exiled to Pola in Istria. From that remote and solitary region, the report at length came that he had been put to death. Every eye was turned on the palace, and before long, most of the historians say, the gay figure of the beautiful young empress disappeared and the report spread that she had been brutally suffocated in the steam of a dense vapor-bath. The horror was increased, and the prospect of a humane interpretation lessened when it was learned that the innocent child of Constantia also had been put to death. Such is the grave and mysterious tragedy of Constantine's mature years." as Fausta has been heavily indicted by those who have sought to defend her husband, and Helena impeached by his accusers, we may glance at the evidence on which one's verdict must be based. There are partisan historians who would cast doubt on the whole story. There are more serious historians, such as Gibbon, who again gallantly opposes the critics, who say that Fausta, at least, was not slain, and the rest are divided in opinion as to whether it was a just execution or a ghastly crime. The first two opinions are now untenable. There is no serious dispute that Crispus and Licinius were put to death, that Fausta was killed is now equally established. Gibbon relied upon a certain anonymous writer to show that Fausta was living long afterwards, 
but it has been shown that the writer is not speaking of Fausta and Constantine. Moreover, Dr. Seek, in a special study of the evidence, Die Verwantenmord, Constantine's Desgrossen, Zeitschrift für Wiss, Theology, B.D. 33, has shown that the coins of Fausta and Crispus, unlike those of the other members of the imperial family, end before the year 330. Dr. Goris, who held Gibbon's view, consents that this proof is decisive. The only serious question is that of motive or justification. Let us glance at the authorities in the order of their nearness to the event. Bishop Eusebius is naturally silent. He professes to give only the things that edify in the life of Constantine, and is writing almost in his son's court. Eutropius, the soundest and most impartial writer of the next generation, says, X6, that the character of Constantine was somewhat changed with prosperity, and that, following the exigencies of the situation, necessitudinis rerum, he put to death first his excellent son and the son of his sister, a boy of promising character, then his wife and a number of friends. St. Jerome, in his Latin version of the Chronicle of Eusebius, writes at the year 329 that Crispus, the son of Constantine, and Licinius the Younger, the son of Constantia, are most cruelly put to death in the ninth year of his reign and three years later we read, Constantine put to death his wife Fausta. Dr. Seek believes that we have here only an echo of Eutropius, but Jerome would hardly add most cruelly on so cautious a narrative. Aurelius Victor, a contemporary of Eutropius, says that Crispus was put to death by his father for some unknown reason and Orosius, the Christian historian, merely observes that Constantine put Crispus and Licinius to death. From these earlier writers we learn only that the deaths were cruel and the motive unknown, but later writers have successively built up a story that has provoked endless discussion. Sidonius Apollinaris, the most cultivated and liberal Christian writer of the fifth century, says, with the confidence of a parenthesis, E.P. 5, that Crispus was poisoned and Fausta killed in a vapor bath, and that a couplet was fixed on the palace gate recalling the crimes of Nero. The epistemist of Aurelius Victor declares that Crispus was put to death at the instigation of Fausta, and Fausta was thereupon killed in a vapor bath, as Helena bitterly reproached Constantine for the death of Crispus. Zosimus, 2.29, says, With no regard for the law of nature, he put to death his son Crispus on the ground that he was suspected of intimacy with Fausta and when Helena heavily reproached him, he, as if to console her, suffocated Fausta in an overheated bath. Phyllis Torgius, a Christian writer of the same fifth century, declares that Fausta was put to death because she was caught in adultery with a groom. The story culminates in the twelfth-century analyst Zonorus. After telling his incredible legend about Constantine and the babies, he represents Fausta in the character of Potiphar's wife. 
she conceived a passion for the handsome caesar was repelled by him and then denounced him to constantine as having offered violence to her crispus was put to death then constantine learned in some way helena is left to the imagination that he had been deceived and he angrily killed fausta in a vapor bath it is remarkable how many grave writers have favored this legend of the medieval writer yet besides its obvious growth through the centuries it has the fatal weakness of throwing no light whatever on the murder of licinius the son of constantine's most cherished sister we are reduced to conjecture in face of this mysterious and terrible tragedy that the youths met with some violent death at the hands of the emperor that helena bitterly remonstrated with him and that the savage suffocation of fausta followed this remonstrance seems to be clear we may further conclude with some confidence from the persistent rumor of amorous relations that this charge was allowed to reach the outside world in extenuation of the murders but it is suspected by many historians and seems to be suggested by the obscure language of eutropius that the real motive was political crispus was in great favor with both the people and the troops and had distinguished himself in the war with licinius if anything happened to constantine who was in his fifty-second year crispus had a clear prospect of the throne it would not be unnatural for fausta to resent this and one is tempted to see either an effect of her importunity or a proof of constantine's jealousy of his son in the fact that constantine took away the province of gaul from crispus without compensation in three twenty three and gave it to the eldest of his legitimate sons from that time crispus was retained in idleness and probably discontent under the eye of his father he would be a natural focus for all the dissatisfaction in the empire and the romans and pagans generally regarded constantine and his family with anger and disdain on account of their abandonment of the old religion by the year 326 constantine was in a state of extraordinary nervousness and suspicion before going to Rome, he issued an edict in which he revealed his frame of mind to the whole empire. At Rome, he flouted the most cherished customs of the city, and may well have incurred fresh murmurs. Something occurred that brought his suspicion of Crispus, who may not have become a Christian, to an acute stage, and he condemned him to exile and death. This theory is also the only one to explain, with any plausibility, the execution of young Licinius. He was the only other rival of Constantine's legitimate sons. It is impossible for us to say whether Crispus had incurred any guilt or no, but the silence of the earlier writers and panegyrists is a grave circumstance. If there had been plausible evidence of conspiracy, they would not have remained silent. In any case, the sentence on Crispus was harsh and unjustifiable, and the execution of a twelve-year-old boy was a piece of brutality that only the worst emperors would have perpetrated. The murder of Fausta is even more perplexing. Even if the late and negligible stories of Philostorgius and Zonaris were true, she was not executed but brutally murdered, 
the only firm point in the conflicting evidence is the persistent association of her death with the anger of helena we have no evidence of any value in regard to her relation to crispus but the words of zosimus which are not inconsistent with the earlier writers enable us to extend the above theory to her Constantine, on this view, put Crispus and Licinius to death because they were possible nuclei of the conspiracy which he believed to pervade the empire. Adopting a familiar device, however, he concealed his motive under a charge of amorous irregularity or too great a familiarity with the empress. Helena, who was greatly attached to Crispus, seems to have insisted that, if there was any guilt, both were guilty, and Constantine savagely completed his work by murdering his wife. The Christian historians describe Fausta as opposing Constantine's progress in his new faith, and as we have no evidence that Crispus had embraced it, one may not implausibly wonder whether the two did not attract the favor of the pagan Romans to the extreme anger of the emperor. No charge against Fausta was made public. During the lifetime of Constantine's eldest son, Julian described her, in one of his orations, as not only one of the most beautiful, but one of the most virtuous and noble ladies of her time. Even if we make allowance for the licensed flattery of a panegyrist, the description would be too glaringly inconsistent with any imperial theory of her infidelity. She was probably in her thirty-fourth or thirty-fifth year at the time when she met her appalling death. Constantine hastened to remove the gloomy stricken court from the disdainful eyes of Rome. The pagans pointed with fierce scorn to these fruits of the new religion as they expressed it. One day it was found that someone had fastened a Latin couplet, written, the pagans of a later day boasted, by the hand of the emperor's chief counsellor, Ablabius, on the gate of the palace. Say ye the golden age of Saturn breaks again? Of Nero's bloody hue these jewels are. Either at once, or in the course of the next year, the court broke up, Constantine went to direct the building of the new capital of the West, which was to bear his name. Later pagans said that he fled from the theater of his crimes and the scorn of Rome. But the ample lines of Constantinople had been traced long before, and the site had been chosen for its strategical importance. Helena sought the land in which Christ had lived and died, and her pious munificence won for her the halo of sanctity. The legend of her finding the cross does not appear until seventy years afterwards, and Eusebius tells us that it was Constantine, not she, who found the sepulchre and built a church over it. But Helena, who had now great wealth, covered the land with churches and returned with a great repute for piety. She died soon after her return, in 328 Tilmont thinks, having passed her eightieth year. Europia also went on a pilgrimage to Palestine, and seems to have settled in the east. We find her a few years later, urging Constantine to scatter the pagans, who are defiling some sacred spot with their impure ceremonies. 
Theodora seems to have died at some unknown date, before the year of the murders. Constantia died in or about the year 329. Her Arian friend Eusebius had been banished at the triumph of the Athanasians, but she obtained his recall and adhered to his Unitarian creed. In her last hours she succeeded in recommending an Arian priest to Constantine, and prolonged the religious struggle. We pass to a new generation of empresses, and may dismiss briefly the ten years which remain of Constantine's rule, and introduce us to the events of the next chapter. In the month of May of the year 330, the new city of Constantinople was solemnly dedicated. The curious reader will find in Gibbon a splendid restoration of its princely proportions, its stores of art gathered from all parts of the empire, its superb palace, its great hippodrome, its churches and temples, its spacious fora, and its lofty column of porphyry, surmounted by a gigantic statue in which the head of Constantine replaced that of Apollo, and the various attributes of the god he still admired were hesitatingly redeemed by emblems of the jealous god of his new faith. The enormous sums absorbed in the building of the new city were regarded by the pagans as one of the causes of the decay of the empire, and the bitter strife of Arians and Athanasians which distracted it irritated their resentment. But their day was closing. The arguments with which they clung to a Jupiter and a Venus, in whom they no longer believed, were hollow. The rewards of conversion were great, the grey gods saw their crowds of worshippers becoming thinner and less joyous. The empire lifted the humble cross into the sunlight from Persia to Britain. The last decade of Constantine's life was inglorious. We might distrust the partial and severe accusations of Zosimus, but the substance of his charge is found in the other authorities. His vast and hurried enterprise in building forced him to lay heavy burdens on his enfeebled empire, and we have the authority of Ammianus Marcellinus that he encouraged those about him to open devouring jaws in a lamentable degree. Conversion was the first right to favor and wealth. The later Emperor Julian, we are not surprised to find, pours acrid satire on him. In the treatise Caesares, in which he introduces the emperors of Rome to the Olympic court, he makes Constantine turn to the goddess Luxury as the one congenial deity, and she introduces him only to her sister Prodigality. He ridicules Constantine's womanly finery in dress and jewels, his elaborate crown of false hair, his complete lapse into effeminate ways. Aurelius Victor gives us the proverbial judgment of the next generation on Constantine. In his first decade he was admirable, in his second decade thievish, in his third decade a squanderer. He made the final blunder of, without naming a successor, dividing the empire among his sons and nephews of gravely unequal character, and died in 337, leaving them and their supporters to engage in a murderous struggle for supremacy. End of section 21